Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is Denise Larson, who is co-founder of New Media Metrics. Today we will discuss the brand attachment of Hispanic consumers. Denise developed the emotional attachment approach and metric in 1997 and acquired patent-pending status in 2002. She founded Thinking Right LLC, where she applied emotional attachment to clients such as Kraft and Procter & Gamble. In 2004, Denise partnered with Gary Reisman to found New Media Metrics. Denise, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. What are we talking about when we say brand attachment? What, what does that brand attachment label refer to? Well, brand attachment is really about uh, understanding the connection and uh, the emotional connection between brands and consumer segments. So it really encompasses um, a, a, a deep understanding, if you will, of what is relevant and what is meaningful and ultimately what attaches consumers to different brands in the marketplace. From several different studies, I gather the understanding that certain market segments tend to be more brand loyal and even more brand oriented, and they're not necessarily the people that you might think. Would you tell us about that? Sure. Um, one of the things that we find in all the work that we've done, and this is years and years of, of um, data and data collection, um, we've been working in this area specifically for uh, over 10 years. And it's interesting that different people, different cultures, do have different levels of attachment to different brands. And what you find is that there are certain cultures that a brand helps define who they are uh, in 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 very very um, very very deep ways. So that there are certain cultures where certain brands don't really mean that much. They don't carry a significance about who somebody is or or what they um, uh, sometimes aspirationally want to be. Um, but in other cultures. Uh, it's true that the, that brand and brand loyalties develop because it says something uh, that a person either wants to say about themselves or it says something that they want others to know about them. So it is um, very likely that you see across segments, so for instance, um, a Hispanic segment versus an African-American versus a Caucasian segment, uh, you'll see high attachment among uh, African-American and the Hispanic market uh, in certain categories. Now, that's not to say that other segments are not attached, uh, but there are certain affinities that develop, and uh, those affinities, what we do at uh, New Media Metrics is we actually measure and quantify uh, those brand attachments. Is it related to income, the brand attachment, is there a relationship between having a brand attachment and an income level or, as you mentioned earlier, an aspirational desire or are these just maybe totally independent from that? No, um, different, I mean, different brands, again, connect with different segments and income is a type of segment, if you will. Uh, but, uh, you know, the luxury goods market, for instance, you would think that maybe the higher income levels are more attached to some of those brands. But in fact, uh, sometimes lower income levels are more attached to some of those brands, especially the ones, um, say, accessories that can be purchased like um, uh, apparel. Uh, well, apparel is not an accessory, but apparel or uh, um, uh, purses or what have you, things, especially in the female market, where there is a strong attachment to those things because it is, it's almost being used as a badge to say who somebody is. Uh, it's not necessarily, you know, right or wrong judgmentally, but a lot of times brands does send a message to, uh, to the world, if you will, or to your peers, uh, in a, in a closer in, uh, way 
that says, this is who I am, this is what I want to be, and this is the way I want you to think about me. And that crosses income levels, that crosses ages, and it crosses cultures. Where is that attachment born, for, for lack of a better word? How does this emotional attachment come about? Uh, well, that's a very interesting question because there's many reasons for the um, what what we often call the why behind the buy. Uh, but one, you know, thing of course is the marketing of goods and services over the years has really become very very sophisticated. Um, of course, you know, advertising is is a core part of that. And what marketers want to do in order to help sell their products and their brands is understand what, uh, again, on an emotional level, on a deep level, what will connect somebody to their brand. I mean, it's easy for a marketer to, uh, you know, lower their price and all of a sudden uh, get into their fold uh, a bunch of people who are, you know, heavy users of their brands. But it's a little bit of a fallacy because you're really uh, a marketer then is just buying people. You know, they're just lowering their price. So it's, I always say I'll, I'll have a, a line outside of my door for any product if if I just give it away. But what the marketer is looking for, which is where branding is really the core of what it's all about, is looking for where is the value connect, the value proposition between the consumer and the uh, and the brand and what goes on behind that <clears throat> many many aspects there's many antecedents to it you know sometimes it's about uh status sometimes it's just about uh getting along in the marketplace because i don't know the jones have you know wanting to be like the joneses but there's it, it really stems brand affinities stem from a marketing and advertising perspective where the marketer wants to say something about their brand that is meaningful, that is relevant, and that happens on many, many levels. I mean, it's not just emotionally driven. I mean, it's also rationally driven, too. People might want to see themselves in Rolls Royces, but there's not a whole lot of people that can afford to buy that. So, um, But this is the type of thing that the marketers are always looking for. Where is the connect between the product the brand and the consumer, and quite honestly, it's it's a issue of communication, uh, and you know it's not always about you know how do I sell more, how do I sell more. I mean, it's just what can I do that will yes help me sell more if I'm a marketer, but is going to uh, have the consumer choose me over all the different competitive options out there, and and there's many many. I mean, we live in a world where it's all about uh, consumer pull, and consumer pull is all about what is emotionally attaching between a brand and a consumer. And you, if I hear you correctly, you need to have a clear understanding of what your message is about the brand that is creating that brand attachment to your different market segments. One of the ideas that came to mind when you were talking about adjusting your price is I remember a while back a several actually of the car companies there was a a shift in the market and they were adjusting their prices downward. These were luxury cars, uh, I want to say Jaguar and Mercedes and so forth. And what they found was that their sales dropped. And when they increased their price, even though it was a challenging market, their sales went up. Yeah, that you raise a very good point because it is really not just about price. It is really about a price value equation. And any marketer, uh, any uh, uh, manufacturer is really what they want to do is they want to get the value of their brand up so that it can support, in many instances, a higher price. And it's it's kind of an interesting um a dilemma a little bit because there's always a price point that if you manufacturers go too high, you know, everybody is going to walk away from it. It's just, you know, ridiculous. There's a law of diminishing returns that, that kicks in. But at the same time, if they go too low, that what they're really saying is that this is not that valuable. And no one um, who is a, you know, recipient of communication 
uh, wants to hear something that, uh, uh, that says, well, this really isn't worth that much, so therefore don't bother buying us. So it's a very delicate dance between that price-value equation, and a lot of times it's more about the value than it is about the actual price. And that's where emotional attachment comes in and brand attachment, because brand attachment is about finding the inherent value, communicating that value to a particular segment, be it across an income, an age, a culture, or all of the above, and then understanding that that, um, that, that value commands a certain uh, price point. So you can't go too low. You really can't go too low because you're saying we're not worth it. When you talk about brand attachment, is that does that extend beyond products? Does it also attach to services? Or one of the things that comes to mind, of course, because we just passed the presidential elections, does it extend to something like a person's brand, whether it's for politics or whether it's entertainment or sports? Does brand attachment go beyond a product? to a service or an individual? Oh, yes, it does. Uh, brand, the word brand is really um, a global word, if you will, because personalities uh, that understand that they're a type of brand, uh, they know how to communicate uh, things about themselves that differentiates them from the competition. So, you know, I mean, singers and um, celebrities, I mean, the ones that understand that they're a brand and understand how that their form of a brand connects with a certain target audience, uh, the better off they're able to manage that connection, communicate something about themselves, and it goes way beyond uh, just a physical product. It, It includes services. It includes personalities. It includes uh, programming and, and networks and websites and media pro- all types of media properties because a brand really is about a set of uh, values and understanding of who or what something is and then being able to communicate that to a target segment who wants to be involved with or want to identify with that particular brand. And that crosses Again, cross and and it's global. It's global. Um, you know, one of the earlier, one of the earlier brands that I could think of <clears throat> the, um, was Madonna. Madonna understood exactly who she was as a brand. Uh, she had, you know, back back in the day, uh, kind of a shock value associated with her. She was always changing things up, reinventing herself. And what she was doing was she understood that she was a brand. And uh, she was managing her assets, if you will, uh, that would hold value to an audience and command, you know, record sales and ticket sales to her show and so on and so forth. Lady Gaga is another great example of understanding that that she understands she's a brand. So, yes, clearly brand has a, a, a lot of dimensions to it, not just physical. Your firm looks at brand attachment and brand-related issues. And if I understand correctly, you did an annual study where you looked at different brands. I think it was 360 brands and different markets. Would you tell us about that? Sure. Um, What we do is we measure um, uh, for 380, I believe it's 380 brands, uh, across the uh, um, U.S., although we've done it globally as well, but our main our main focus is domestic. Uh, we measure the emotional attachment between brands, media, and consumer segments. And what I mean by that is, uh, we do a study, uh, uh, a few studies during the year that quantify how attached somebody is to a brand. So take a brand like you know Kellogg's Corn Flakes. How, what is the emotional attachment between the brand, the consumer, and also the media property? Because it's really about quantifying the right message to the right people in the right environment, which we've been able to validate over the years is really provides, um, a sales lift for a particular brand. 
So uh, our form of emotional attachment is based on uh, psychological theory, uh, attachment theory in the bonding process. Uh, we've been validated to be predictable in the marketplace of what people will be attached to, or what media properties they'll be attached to, and, and who those people are. And that's the primary emphasis of what we do. How do you do that, Denise? Can you give us a, a little bit of a glimpse on how you get that information? Sure. Um, we, we conduct online surveys, so that's the way that it is extracted from the marketplace. It's online surveys among 4,000 consumers across the U.S., and it has the representation of all cultures. But um, <clears throat> what we went back to the academic world uh, to see whether or not, and this goes over 10 years ago, there was insights that we could draw from the um, human behavior. Because frequently, especially in marketing and media and in business, you know, there's a lot of metrics, a lot of, a lot of uh, benchmarks that are out in the marketplace. And a lot of times they come from within the industry, uh, which isn't always, you know, sometimes if you're kind of close in, you don't always see the bigger picture. So we stepped out of the box a little bit, uh, went into the academic world of human behavior, and have drawn from attachment theory in the bonding process, which actually was a child development, is a child development uh, theory uh, based on measuring uh, secure and insecure relationships between mother and child. So without getting too kind of, you know, school-like about this, uh, it's really uh, borrowing from the work that's been done in the academic world and applying it to the marketing and media world because ultimately it's about loyalties and commitments and um, attachments that will last. Uh, that sounds really interesting. I could spend some time asking you about that, but uh, we've promised to talk about the Hispanic consumer brand attachment, so maybe we can move in that direction a little bit. When we talk about the Hispanic market in the U.S., we're talking a ver about a very, very large market, how do you go about defining a Hispanic consumer for purposes of your brand study? Well, we actually um, let people define it themselves. Uh, it's not, a, you know, really up to us to uh, tell somebody whether they are Hispanic or not. Uh, so we do a self-reported survey, online survey, and one of the areas that people can choose is whether or not they define themselves as Hispanic. Now, there's lots of different, um, uh, as you said, segments underneath that. I mean, you have all sorts of uh, delineations and different segments within the Hispanic market. But for purposes of our research, uh, we, we classify people as Hispanics. We can get deeper into the type of Hispanics or the region of the country they live in and so on and so forth. Um, but keeping it on a broad basis, uh, we let people self-classify. And in our study, uh, we have a representation of the Hispanic market in the United States, and we ask basically their brand attachment to many, many different brands. I mean, over 300 and something brands. And then we quantify that attachment, and that is used for marketing purposes. Now, I will say, I'm really going to interrupt myself for a second. Um, it's nice to know that somebody loves your brand. And that's, you know, maybe makes you feel good or, you know, makes you feel better if they love you versus the competition or whatever. But at the end of the day, um, emotional attachment, the reason why we quantify it is because it actually can be leveraged, if you will, and it has a sales component. So the more emotionally attached somebody is to your brand, uh, the more likely they will purchase it. And really, so it's, you know, when you use the word emotion, sometimes people think it's, you know, very um, uh, maybe not as tangible, if you will, as uh, some other approaches. But in our, the way we define it, it's really all about leveraging emotional attachment in order to see what the connection to sales is. 
Now that you mentioned the, the emotional aspect, one of the things that comes to my mind is that an emotion in and of itself is a neutral concept. So you can have an emotional reaction to a brand that isn't necessarily positive. There are brands that if you mention their name might turn consumers away, that, that they have a, a negative reaction to the brand. How does that feature into the study or, or does it at all? No, it does very much so. We have a scale, and um, it is an 11-point scale that comes, again, out of the academic world, so I won't get too deep into that. But And that scale um, runs from zero all the way up to 10. As I said, it's 11 points. So you're absolutely right. I mean, you can have a strong uh, emotional attachment or lack thereof, and you've got to be able to capture that in general. And certain categories have stronger emotional attachments than other categories. Certain brands have, you know, stronger versus um, uh, less, if you will. And we try to capture the whole spectrum. Now, we try. We do capture the whole spectrum so we know what we're dealing with. The temptation, of course, is to ask you to tell us about some of those brands. But before going there, would you... Paint a picture for us, if you can, of the Hispanic consumer and its emotional attachment profile, if there's such a thing. Well, it's an interesting question because the Hispanic consumer or the Hispanic segment uh, does seem to have an interesting profile when it comes to brand attachments. And one of the things that we're seeing, and again, we cover many, many different categories. We cover 48 categories. So, you know, everything from, you know, the auto industry to cereal to uh, theme parks and credit cards and you name it. And what's what's really interesting out of our research is that there is seems to be, um, I almost call it an accounting theory of uh, uh, first in, last out, you know, Philo, right? Because it seems like the brands that get, and into the Hispanic market or have been in the Hispanic market, connecting with them already for many years, those are the brands that have a very high degree of emotional attachment. Now, there are competitors out there, but there is a very, very big difference between the first one who was out there versus a competitive brand. And we don't see that as much in the Caucasian market. We see a much closer, among competitive brands, we see much closer emotional attachment. So um, that is very interesting to me, just as a as a uh, statement on the Hispanic market. It's almost like there are brands that have been reaching out to the Hispanic market for years and years and years, and those brands seem to be rewarded now that the Hispanic market is really, really growing and very, very influential and going to have a very strong impact in, um, in, in marketing and media and ultimately in revenues. We know that within the Hispanic market, there are a number of sub-markets or segments within the larger market. And one of the ways that marketers often divide them is by level of acculturation mm-hmm. or language preference. Are you using any of those divisions to help you fine-tune your results? You know, we are not at this time, uh, but that is absolutely on the table. We will be doing this in the real near future in terms of, um, for instance, one major cut, you know, Spanish dominant versus English dominant versus um, bilingual, uh, and that's just on a very broad sense, Uh, different regions of the country, different types of Hispanics. So we plan to get into that very, very quickly um, as we grow our Hispanic portion of our database. One of the descriptions that I've heard from experts like yourself in relation to the Hispanic market is that Hispanics tend to be very brand loyal. A little bit of what you said earlier, that they tend to hang on to those companies that have been from the beginning present, targeting them and reaching out to them, sometimes even through the generations. Are there specific brands that stood out in your study as 
having a particular brand attachment from Hispanic consumers? Well, yes, and it's interesting to me the types of brands that really stand out. I'm going to do this from a cross-category basis for for a minute, if you um, if you will. For instance, in in the credit card, um, there's a very high degree of attachment uh, among uh, the Hispanic market and Visa uh, versus a Mastercard. I'll give you some numbers. Uh, the emotional attachment among Hispanics. To Visa is 24.3%. Uh, the attachment among Hispanics to MasterCard is 13.4%. So that is a very, very large difference in terms of attachment, um, which means it's going to take MasterCard quite a bit of time, effort, and money uh, to catch up to um, the attachment among Hispanics it, that Visa has. At the same time, you look at some other categories, and let's take, you know, moving to something totally different, uh, snack foods. And here you see a strong degree of attachment to Doritos uh, among Hispanics versus a Cheetos or a Pringles. And again, the numbers there, Doritos is 20.5% is levels of attachment versus a Pringles at 9.5%. So, um, you know, same is true of, of Oreos, has a very strong degree of attachment among Hispanics, 22.3%. Uh, and that is as against a Chips Ahoy, let's say, at 11.6%. So, you know, I'm not sure the specific numbers are, you know, finding they're meaningful, they're meaningful to, uh, to us in analysis. But the point is that there are definitely brands that have been speaking to uh, the Hispanic market for years and they're going to be the brands that reap the benefit of the growing Hispanic market. Um, and, and it seems like some of these brands are, are global in nature, and so some of that might be coming from uh, that some of these brands have always had a global perspective. Uh, but cross-category, there are definitely going to be winners and losers, and many major brands that we see, it's going to take a lot of resources for them to, to play catch-up. And they're going to have to play catch-up because of the growing, uh, growing influence and impact that the Hispanic market has in the United States. Oftentimes we hear from marketers that the Hispanic consumer tends to mimic the general market over time. So the more acculturated a Hispanic becomes, the more likely it is to be similar to the general market consumer in its profile his or her profile. In relation, for example, to the items that you just mentioned to us, Visa, MasterCard, Doritos, Pringles, Oreos, Chips Ahoy, how does that those numbers, how do those numbers relate to the general market numbers? In other words, if there's a 24.3% emotional attachment for Visa among Hispanics, what is the emotional attachment for the general market? Is there... Am I making uh, sense? Yeah, no, no, I understand what you're saying. Uh, you know, it's it's a little difficult to make those direct comparisons because in some cases um, our Hispanic database, uh, our sample size is a little smaller. I mean, it's readable and it's true and it's accurate, um, and, but the general market uh, seems to overwhelm it. But I can tell you that, uh, for instance, in the credit cards, uh, American Express is the number one attaching brand uh, among the Caucasian market. And, uh, you know, Visa is up there as well, but certainly not as strong as it is among the Hispanic market. So there are a lot, there are certainly differences between the segments. And um, I, I would speak you really at a turn if I was making direct comparisons, uh, only because of uh, some of the sample sizes that we're dealing with. Uh, but I certainly see over time uh, the Hispanics have carved out the, the Hispanic segment uh, for certain brands are are really the ones that are going to be the winners. And um, and I think the general market is going to have to uh, catch up a little bit to what is going on in the Hispanic market. I actually think it's the opposite. I don't think the Hispanic market is necessarily going to look long-term exactly 
the way the general market looks, I think is really going to be a morphing. And it's going to get interesting because the culturation models that we believe are true today uh, may not necessarily be true in even, you know, three to five years from now. Do you think that there's a relationship between the percentage of youth among emerging markets, and very specifically the Hispanic market, and the general market, meaning that one out of every four babies born today is Hispanic, when you say that you're expecting that there's going to be morphing going in both directions? Yeah, no, I think the Hispanic market is going to have a tremendous impact on uh, brand uh, development, brand marketing programs, uh, media properties. I think it's I, I don't think the general market is going to be as we know it, and I certainly don't think that um, Hispanics are just going to all of a sudden become like the general market. There, of course, is the youth factor, which will redefine everything, regardless of the segment, and there'll be a lot of blending. And, I'm, you know, I, I guess my crystal ball, as good as I like to think it is, I think there's going to be some exciting, exciting um, marketing opportunities that we can't even think of right now. And I think that's the way – you know, it was interesting to me. I was not too long ago – I had attended a, a multicultural uh, conference, and um, the uh, SVP of Walmart uh, announced that uh, that 100% of Walmart's growth uh, next year – will be coming from the Hispanic market. Now, that's a huge, huge statement. You know, that is really a huge statement. And um, and, and then he went on to say uh, that, you know, 100% uh, of funding, uh, media-wise, marketing-wise, will be geared towards the Hispanic market. So that's a major retailer, uh, you know, waking up and recognizing uh, that this is going to be a whole new ball game. We've been hearing about it, of course, uh, since the census results were in the works and, and now the word seems to be spreading, but that certainly seems like a big message. One of the ideas that popped into my head when you talked about your crystal ball was new technology and new devices. And crystal balls, of course, are always ahead of the curve. <laughs> yes, that's true. This... This world that we're in now is shifting so quickly in terms of media consumption, devices, mobility, and youth are, of course, playing a role, but everybody seems to be biting that apple. What can you tell us from the perspective of brand attachment in general and brand attachment among Latinos, if you have any information on that? Well, yes, I mean, there's no doubt. Technology forces change. And uh, it's, it's you know, a lot of times I like to say it's kind of the force of nature when change actually happens. And technology is one of those things that forces change. And eventually, not changing will force change. So look at BlackBerry. Talk about technology. I mean, BlackBerry, you know, Blackberries were on top of the world two years ago. Uh, now it's they're in dire straits and really need to, you know, revamp and refocus as they decided that, you know, they were happy on top of the world and, and they weren't going to do anything to uh, evolve with the marketplace. Uh, but certainly um, youth, technology, and uh, a an overall um, uh, momentum of uh, is going to definitely impact different brand attachments, and it's going to impact it you know, certainly in the tech world, but it's going to impact it in every every single category as we become more advanced. As again, as technology, I mean, there's just there's no no question about it. technology forces change, and you know what else? It's it's entrepreneurs uh, force change. Uh, because entrepreneurs and cross cultures uh, are never satisfied with the status quo. So uh, when they come up with, you know, and usually is, I have to laugh because we always think in terms of today, you know, big data and big data sets. And uh, in my mind, entrepreneurs, you know, have always been sort of a sample size of one. So quite opposite than than what um, 
what sometimes we think in the marketplace uh, matters. But that will force change, and and again, again, youth and technology and the blending of the diversification of of America. It's happening. I mean, it is happening, and uh, and it's exciting, and it presents opportunities. And I believe that those companies and those brands and those celebrities and those politicians that don't recognize that are not going to be on the winning side. And I think we just saw that um, not too long ago with the election. The presidential election? Yeah, sure. The presidential election, yeah. And that, of course, even though we don't label it that way, was all about branding, wasn't it? All about branding all about branding. That's why I was speaking earlier about, you know, Madonna or Lady Gaga or I mean, it's all about uh, you know, Obama is a brand, President President Obama is a brand, Mitt Romney's a brand, and uh one side seemed to mismanage or misread the marketplace and as a result did not end up um, you know, being being a winner. And yet the results from the popular election were very close, so there was certainly a very large percentage of the population that was brand loyal to the losing side, which is very interesting from a branding perspective. It means that they were very effective. Is that right? Yeah. No, it's from a branding perspective, they were not as effective. Um, you know, there's always, there's always a winner, there's always a loser. Um, but it's a matter of now going back and many brands in the marketplace, not not just take it away a little bit from the politics, but many brands are going to have to think about how they reposition themselves and how they rebrand themselves in order to communicate with the Hispanic marketplace and with the growing marketplace. Because if they don't, they're going to, you know, be out of business. I mean, you know, I don't mean to talk about what happened a million years ago, but, you know, buggy whips are not useful anymore. <laughs> And the people that, you know, didn't want to get out of that business got got out of business very quickly because autos were the main thing. So, And the, the, even though it's an old, old example and maybe a little bit comical, uh, the, the premise of it is exactly the same and holds true and the principle of today. Those companies that will not change will be forced to change. Those politicians that will not change will be forced to change. And, and things will be different because at the end of the day, the consumer, the person who's actually plunking the money down out of their pocket, absolutely has the final say. And that's where brand attachment is critical because they're the ones that have the final vote and the final say. And there's nothing that a marketer can, you know, force about that. They have to foster a relationship. And the smart ones will and then stubborn ones won't, and we'll see how it all nets out at the end. But my crystal ball says those that don't get on board are not going to um, end up being the winners in the marketplace. It's Darwinian at the end of the day, isn't it? <laughs> well, I guess a little bit. You know, it's it's. I think it's, yeah, it's, it's really evolutionary for sure. Um, it's it's evolutionary. It's not necessarily revolutionary. Uh, the you know change happens, and it happens you know very slowly, but all of a sudden it comes and becomes the norm. And you know we hear today a lot of people say the new normal, and that's all true. And it's and and it's exciting because it presents new opportunities and new ways of thinking and new ways of blending and bringing. You know, what's so exciting is bringing differences together. You know, we always talk about differences. The word difference in itself suggests separation. But it's really where bringing it together is really where the insight is, where the opportunities lie, and, and where what's next really becomes uh, just, just I don't know, in my mind, just tremendously, uh, tremendously exciting. So it's Denise, the fun we, part. <laughs> Sorry, what was that? I said it's the fun part. <laughs> when you talk about all of those changes and survival and adapting, one of the things that comes to mind, of course, is social media because it is changing the way that we as a society communicate and interact. What 
are your findings when you look at brand attachment in relation to social media and its role? Well, certainly social media plays a huge role uh, in in how people communicate today. I mean, it's that it's understatement and obvious at this point. But uh, it is so inherent and so – it's, it's not even accepted. It's inherent, especially in the way the youth communicate with one another, uh, that, again – uh, you know, Facebook. I mean, look how many, you know, millions and millions and millions of people on Facebook. But really what's going to matter, it's not just the numbers, although the, the numbers are daunting, but it's who. It's who is on Facebook connecting with other people. Who is, you know, what brands do they represent? What, what, what is their thinking? So it's really always going to go back to the individual. As, as big and as, as, you know, pervasive as social media is, I always say, you know, what, what chatter matters? I mean, just because people are talking doesn't mean anybody's listening. But the critical factor is who are the people that are talking that people are listening to? And I think that's where social media, you know, sometimes gets, it's, it's pervasive and it's, never, ever going to go back the other way. We're not going back to, you know, telephones necessarily and uh, landlines, I guess. But um, it's it's a matter of monitoring who, who is doing the talking and who is actually doing the listening. So I think it always, as, as big and as important as it is, I think it's always going to go back to kind of the individual. Can you tell us anything specific about brand loyalty or brand attachment to some of the social media channels? Uh, for example, there's talk that many people have moved away from Facebook in the United States and North America and Europe. The last number I heard was that more than 6 million people in the U.S. alone had closed their accounts and that the majority of the growth and presence in Facebook was increasingly international. There's, of course, talk about Twitter becoming increasingly popular in the business segment. What can you tell us about the channels that are most popular and the emotional attachment factor? Well, the emotional attachment, uh, for instance, among <clears throat> with Google, all right, Google search, is uh, among the Hispanic market is 40.5%. And uh, the emotional attachment to uh, Yahoo is uh, 20%. So, you know, there's a big, big difference between those two brands. Now, what's going to be in the future, uh, whether it's going to be does Twitter win or does, um, you know, Pinterest win or, or, or Facebook is now losing people, again, that's going to go back to the technology. And I think there's a, a – just – you know, hate sort of not to have an answer for that, but I, I it's going to uh, be so we so different that it's going to be difficult to imagine who's going to be coming up as the next winner. And but we are communicating differently. We're commun because of texting, because of Twitter, we're communicating in much shorter ways. And uh, I wonder the technology brand that recognizes that almost what's the next Twitter. Uh, it's going to be very interesting to watch. And I don't know which, I, I, at this point, I'll be honest with you, I don't know what brand that is, but uh, somebody is going to emerge that's going to be the next, uh, uh, the, the Facebook or the Twitter of the next century. Because of all of the time that people are spending in social media or on social media channels, they're spending less time on websites and using email or so this is what some of the experts are saying. Do you see evidence of that in your research? Sure. Emotional attachment to Twitter to, uh, is definitely growing. And um, we see certain websites, attachment to certain websites is decreasing. And um, this is going to have a major impact on advertising and advertisers. I mean, you know, it used to be the conversation was, should we advertise on TV or should we buy a banner ad? Well, that's not the conversation anymore because that conversation is irrelevant at this point. 
Um, and I advertisers are going to have to find new ways to uh, to communicate the messages shorter and more relevant uh, to to their you know to the people that they want again to attach with. So and those social channels are critical. But again, it's you know technology for technology's sake has has never been a good idea. So there has to be again an inherent value. And we have to tap into the insight that uh, why are people communicating uh, shorter, quicker? I mean, is it just a matter of, you know, speed? And and some people, some of the psychologists would say we're not even communicating anymore. Even even using that word is, is kind of, you know, doesn't mean what it used to mean. Um, we don't, you know, spell the way we used to spell. <laughs> we don't write sentences the way we used to write sentences. And, and everything seems to be a bit impersonal. But... Um, but again, uh, these are changes that are happening, will continue to happen, and um, will be the, the companies that leverage them, understand them, embrace them, and see them as exciting are the companies that are ultimately going to win and connect the best with their consumers. Which brings us back to the beginning in a way. You've discovered that emotional attachment is a, a very important aspect of success for a business. How does a business, how does somebody who's listening to us now, who says, okay, I get it, emotional attachment is important, how do I get emotional attachment? What What do you say to that? How do you get a customer to become emotionally attached to your brand? What are the essential elements, let's say? Well, the first essential element is they really have to care and like really care, not just give lip service to it. And I think that um, that's that's number one. I mean, they have to care what the consumer wants, and and give them what they want. I mean, and not uh, you know be stubborn to think that they know better or know it all, or maybe perhaps you know uh, have you know more resources available to them that they they know uh, that they can force things down people's throats. That's not going to happen. Uh, so they have to care. Um, they have to listen. And and again, you know, we talked about social media, and you see all the time. Well, I got this many people that are talking about my brand. Okay, but who are they? What do they want? What are they really, really saying? Forget about what you know. You think they're saying. You have to get out there. You have to listen, which is a whole host of ways to do that. You know, research has been around as long as marketing and advertising has been around. But it really is about caring about the cons- uh, consumer, listening to what they have to say, and then really going back to the drawing board and saying, okay, this is the way it's going, and we are willing to make an investment in our own future. And they have to see it, you know, budget-wise, not as a cost, but as an investment. And that is not always an easy decision corporate America to make. How does a company, a brand, a person, a service, whatever it is, know whether their customers, their fans have a brand attachment? It, it sounds really easy, but sometimes it's hard to know whether your audience is aware and or loyal. How, how do you know? Well, you know, of course, you know, the more attached a consumer is, the more loyal, the more they are willing to buy your brand, the more they're willing to pay more for it, the more they're willing to go deeper into your franchise. So let's take the insurance category, for instance. If you are a, you know, have auto insurance from a company and you have an attachment to them because they've done right by you in some way, shape, or form, uh, you might consider getting your life insurance from them or your home insurance. So, you know, that cross uh, cross-category sell is critical. And, uh, you know, you know how they know it best? They know it from their P&L statements. And uh, that's that's how companies know who's attached, who's not, and whether or not that attachment is waning. And it's it's pretty much as simple as that. And finding out what those attachments uh, are and what they need to be, again, is a- an effort on the part of a company to uh, care enough to get out there and say, we heard you and, you know, we're going to deliver this or we're going to fix that or we're going to, you know, give this 
to you in a way that um, that you want it. And uh, those are the companies once again that will that will be the winners. Is it important for a company to be clear about who is brand loyal among their customers and why? What is it that's making them brand loyal? Is that important or is it just important to know that people are buying their products and services or becoming fans if it's a... Oh, no, no. It's critically important for them to know why because you want to broaden. Any company wants to broaden their base. So you want to know very deeply what those um, those most attached, and I use the word attached as opposed to loyalty, and I'll tell you why. It might sound like a semantic difference, but loyalty and commitment is a result of being attached to something. Um, you know, you, you're you not going to be loyal or committed unless you have a, a, a kind of a deep connection to begin with. Um, so I, and I know they're used interchangeably all the time, but just, just so you know, kind of clear as how uh, we think about it. But um, it's it's critically important to know that because there's always people that are on the cusp, always. There's always people that are sort of looking in from the outside and saying, gee, is this really a brand for me? Is this a service for me? Is this a something I would, you know, want to connect with? And that's how you grow a business, and that's critically important. But I always say it's, it's it's important to know what your 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 most attached people already know because if you can find how to communicate that to the next group in, then you're going to have a strong growing business. How do you figure that out? Well, you measure it. You know, I mean, I'd be you know, selfishly self-serving, but saying, you know, you measure it. You have to measure. Attachments. You have to measure uh, where people are at. You you do research, <clears throat> and you understand numerically, quantifiably, what your most attached people are uh, know what they what they're willing to. You know, it's funny because I I really frequently think that brands have survived over the years. Uh, many many managers who manage those brands. So there has to be a connection between a brand and a consumer because there's a lot of brands that quite simply just don't die. And they don't die because the consumer, whoever that, whatever that connection is, wants them very much to, um, to stay around. So, you know, you figure it out by, again, getting underneath, getting to the insight and getting to that personal connection because brands do say something about us whether we like to admit it or not. And that's something is, is once it's quantified, um, again, you can, you can leverage that emotional attachment. And then it's a win-win situation. It's not just about a company making more money. It's about a consumer getting what they want, uh, how they want it, in a way that they want it, from a company that's willing to deliver it to them. And then that's, that's a win-win. That is a win-win. For large brands, let's say, or companies that have large brands, it's, I'm going to use the word easy, but I realize that there's a lot of effort and time and resources required to do it. But essentially, they can have a department dedicated to this measurement. They can hire someone like your company to help them with that information gathering and analysis. What about startups? What about new brands? What about small companies on a shoestring, nonprofits, and so forth? How can they go about identifying the brand attachment to their brand? Well, um, you know, small startups, again, it goes back to my sort of my entrepreneur point. Uh, everything sort of started with sample size of one. Uh, they started up because they saw a gap in the marketplace or they saw a need that wasn't fulfilled, which is almost hard to believe because you think with every large corporation out there, you know, every need in the world is fulfilled. But the fact of the matter is they started somewhere. And I think those are the people that understand uh, their passionate, most attached consumers the best. And and 
you know, you don't have to do that on a big budget. You just have to do that by, again, caring and listening and then thinking about how to actually leverage and evolve it to bring more people into the fold. So it's it's communication. It's basic, basic communication principles. It's basic, basic, um, almost as you had said earlier, you know, it's evolutionary, um, but it's basic human behavior. And quite honestly, that's why we turned to the academic world to see if there was anything that made sense in in based off of basic human behavior that we could apply in the marketing world because it doesn't work the other way around. You know, you could do all the marketing, all the media, and you know all the research you want to do, um, but if you don't understand the basic tenets between what makes people tick, um, you're really just shooting in the dark. For those of our listeners who are in a position to seek outside help to hire someone to help them measure some of those issues, what would you say is the range in terms of resources that they need to allocate? And when I, when I say resources, I mean time for a project, time for research, and budget monies. What would you say is sort of the minimum starting point? And usually the sky's the limit, but can you help us get a handle on that? Sure. I mean, you know, it's it's interesting to me that there are advertising budgets that are frequently, you know, many categories quite high. I mean, $20 million, $30 million, $50 million. I mean, I just read the other day, I forget how much a Super Bowl, you know, one spot went for a couple million dollars. Um, and and that that's large, large amounts of money. But um, to understand why that ad is on or who should or, or what it should be saying, uh, a lot of times is seen as, you know, well, we can't afford that. You know, it's not it's too much money. Um, which is a little bit, you know, opposite thinking. But, you know, you go out, you can start small, uh, you can do focus groups, you can do ethnographies, which is really understanding on a one-on-one basis what people are all about, what makes them tick uh, in relation to your brand or your service. And, you know, the actual cost of these things, they could range anywhere from, I don't know, $50,000 uh, upwards to, you know, 200, 250, uh, sometimes even on the high end, 300,000. But when you think about that as a percentage of what is spent, even sometimes on one piece of advertising, it is, it, it's a, it's a, it's a drop in the ocean in terms of, of, uh, you know, investment. So, you know, the range is, is in that area. You know, once you get involved with, uh, monitoring and measuring uh, contracts, like for instance with Nielsen, and understanding you know those are currencies in the marketplace. That's a little bit different. You know, then you're talking in the millions of dollars range. Uh, but in terms of understanding and insight, um, not to sell the industry short, but I think I think we've undervalued uh, insight in many many instances and have overvalued. Uh, some of the currencies in the marketplace. What suggestions or guidance would you share with our audience, those executives, those decision makers who would like to get a better handle on brand attachment? What tips or guidance would you share with them? Uh, what tips to get a better handle? Well, certainly <clears throat> there are many companies out there that have different ways of looking at emotional attachment, but they exist, and so it's critical to tap into those companies. Uh, there are many, there are many, you know, there's not just one way, there's not just one road uh, to understanding what makes people tick. Uh, so my advice would be to reach out to some of the uh, industry standards that have been around for a while and find the people that are talking the talk and not just walking, you know, uh, uh, rather walking the walk, not just talking the talk. Find the people that are really understand how important insight is. And, and you will become 
a kindred spirit with them. You will know them when you see them because you will connect on a level that is, that is you know, actually, it's kind of interesting. There's a, usually an emotional attachment when you find those people. They're more strategic in nature. Uh, they're not just about just about the numbers. They're about the people and then realizing it, but the numbers are around the people. Um, so you kind of find them. Uh, you, you find each other. When the starting point is, is in the industry, and there's been companies that have been around for many, many years that uh, understand that insight matters. Thank you, Denise, for joining us from Long Island, New York. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Denise Larson, who is co-founder of New Media Metrics, who discussed the brand attachment of Hispanic consumers. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicMPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicMPR.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com.